I'm Doug DeVries, and I'm joined here today by Mila Brusik, and uh, today we're going to talk about keratoconus and blepharotosis. And uh, Mila, anything about your practice? That, uh... Uh, yeah, so just a little bit of a background on myself. I'm a partner of a four-location practice in Northwest Ohio, Premier Vision Group, and um, over the last 20 years that I've been in clinical practice, um, it has evolved tremendously with a lot of the technologies not only in terms of the diagnostics that we have available, Doug, but also the treatments and the therapeutics that we have available to care for our patients. And we've tried to keep as much as possible on top of those changes in the profession. And you're really in a, in a primary care setting that does very advanced medical detection and treatment, is that right? Yeah, yeah, and we try, we try and keep up to speed on the technologies as best as we possibly can. Tough, huh? Uh, um, it is, and what we're finding is incorporation of these technologies is just as important as um, understanding them as well, too. So it's a two-phase process, understanding them and then how they fit in the practice. And the, and the challenge is always, I mean, the best technology in the world, but it's got to be implemented. And that's exactly and that's right. The, I mean, then you're talking about patient flow and you're so, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah agreed. And, uh, so why is it important to detect keratoconus uh, as early as possible? Yeah, so we now have the opportunity to do several things that, you know, looking back five, ten years ago, based on the algorithms that we had to detect it and also to treat it, we, we just didn't have available. So why it's important early on is we, we start to guide on um, environmental modifications as best as we possibly can. We find that keratoconic patients tend to have a higher chance or higher risk of having allergic eye disease, which can propagate the condition. Um, we know that keeping the hands away from the eyes is critically important for these patients. Um, interestingly, in optometry school, I wrote a paper on the balance of the degradative enzymes within the cornea and the imbalance that exists in keratoconic patients. And still to this day, it's true. And we think mechanical rubbing is one of those challenges. Yeah, that's been a widely held belief for a long time. Yeah, that that's, that that's occurring. So what are some of the risk factors that Yep. So allergic eye disease is one of those those highest risk factors, and certainly genetics plays a role in this. Just like everything, I constantly get asked by patients, why do I develop something? And it's always a combination between two things. One is genetic risk, and one is environmental risk. Right, right, exactly. And that's... Uh, so... Uh, in screening for refractive surgery, because uh, you send patients out for refractive we surgery, do. what do. kind of screening do you do in your private practice? And then I'll share what I do yep. uh, within our practice, which is a, strictly a medical surgical facility. Yeah, so the first thing we do is kind of relatively common to a lot of patients, and that is um, we'll do autorefractor, autokeratometry, and best corrective visual acuity. Any okay. reduction has to be explained. We look at those patients with oblique and against the rule of stigmatism a little bit closer. And then as we start to delve into either the contact lens wear or the refractive surgery candidate, we, we're more apt to perform topography and then even to anterior segment tomography. And what we're really looking for is the absence of any type of abnormalities in that cornea, which we sometimes can detect on topography, sometimes we can detect on anterior segment OCT, and sometimes it's a combination of those two. One, to make sure we have enough stromal bed to, to right. do the refractive surgery, but also two, there's areas of thinning that are sometimes concerning to these patients. Now, you always have these patients that have question marks about their diagnostic categorization, meaning there's clearly keratoconic patients or corneal abnormalities. There are clearly normal patients. 
Then there's this kind of gray area where you're taking these measurements and it's not as clear cut as this is normal versus abnormal. And we now have genetic testing to actually look at these individuals to determine their level of genetic risk for developing keratoconus. And do you run that within your practice then? We do, yeah, we absolutely do. And we have several patients where we've um, either moved one way or another based on what the current algorithm on fitting them with contact lenses or even refractive surgery would be for those patients. Yeah, and you know, in, our, in our practice, which is, I mean, we do refractive surgery in the practice. I mean, you outline the points perfectly. You take a look at the cornea, you look at pachymetry yep. and see if there are areas that are of concern. You look at uh, asymmetry that between yeah. one eye and the other, you look at steepness of the case. And I think that addresses what you talked about is sometimes it just doesn't fit into a category. And mm -hmm. that's the one where you take pause and you say, what direction are we going to go with this patient? Yeah. I agree, Doug. And you, you hit on a point there that is so critical, not only for corneal management, for, but for anything, this concept of symmetry. We oftentimes look at each eye in isolation, but right. sometimes it's when we put both pieces together and the diagnostic data together where we start to see some of those asymmetries manifesting. And that's actually the trigger to actually warrant further testing in those patients. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, when we when we take a look at a patient that doesn't fit into those norms, I mean, that causes every refractive mm -hmm. surgeon to say, okay, how is this really going to play out? Mm -hmm. And am I taking too much risk on for this patient? Is this patient going to actually have a good outcome and an irregular outcome? So we've found that the genetic testing has been invaluable at that yeah. point. And yeah. it, when, when we get that back, and what we're doing is we're looking at that genetic testing on patients that you describe perfectly, they don't make sense. Mm -hmm. You have some concern, there's some asymmetry. Mm -hmm. Because corneas should be pretty symmetrical yeah, you know, I, when we talk about. I agree, Doug. And we, we actually have that, that clinical moment of pause or question with patients who maybe have parents who are, have keratoconus and they may be interested in refractive surgery. I mean, those are patients we proceed with much more cautiously. And that's where genetic analysis is substantial to our management of those patients. And you kind of described some of the uh, the tools that you use with the genetic testing and you utilize the corneal. And you said at some point you do that or do you do, do that on each uh, refractive patient? Um, so refractive surgery candidates, yes. Um, when we're fitting patients with contact lenses, for example, Doug, and there's this um, either asymmetry between the two eyes, oblique stigmatism that's starting to manifest, or stigmatism that's progressing faster than we would expect for the patient's age, um, we start to take a deeper dive into the corneal characteristics. Because what we found is, again, sometimes these individuals may be early keratoconic patients. So taking that information, we, we make a clinical judgment. Does it warrant a genetic analysis to determine what level of risk they have? And we'll actually change our fitting strategy, meaning um, and I'll give you a perfect example. So it's a 14-year-old patient, oblique astigmatism, progressing astigmatism. Um, keratoconic, or excuse me, um, topography readings aren't necessarily clear. There's a little bit of pachymetry thinning where we wouldn't expect. With a high genetic risk of keratoconus, we're much more apt to place that individual in a scleral lens sooner because it actually provides protection against access to the cornea, yeah. which we think is that mechanical stimulation to potentially 
quicker progression. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. It, uh, and, and, you know, when you see that just that pattern you don't recognize, it's not what you do recognize, it's what you don't recognize. And when you see that little bent bow tie pattern or something like that, mm -hmm. it can be very subtle. Yep. And depending on the age, it can be. And you mentioned tomography also that you use that. Mm -hmm. yep. And uh, I think that can be another valuable tool. Uh, and the uh, wavefront aberrometry, do you have that as well? We do, yeah. And that's actually done as part of a screening um, procedure. So we can actually determine immediately whether or not that individual has high or or low. So again, that's more of kind of a, an initial barometer where we start asking other questions if they come up with higher order aberrometry readings that are outside of that normal Any range. Any corneal biometric tests? Um, you know, there there are, and uh, and they're available. We don't actually have those in our practices, but we know several clinicians who are using those as even a screening tool for these patients or individuals yeah. and doing it preoperatively so that they're not missing any of these subtle changes. Yeah. Tell us about that, Jen. I mean, it's it's fascinating that we have this technology available in optometry practice yep. for genetic testing. Yep. So just like any test in optometry, it should never be taken in isolation. It's taken into account with several other tests and a lot of those resources. But what it does is it takes 70 genes that we know have an association with keratoconus, and it's referred to as a polygenetic risk score. That's the output that we get. And what happens is is the company's actually looking for variants in those genes. Any variants can actually increase risk in the development of keratoconus. So it's increasing your susceptibility or your genetic susceptibility to it. The lower that polygenic risk is, the less genetic risk you have. The higher the polygenic risk score is, the higher that risk factor is. And what we found is that for these individuals that have either low or high risk factors, we just take very different steps when we're managing these patients. Totally. I mean, and and if you would elect a procedure, you would probably elect a different type of procedure, Correct. maybe 100%. go with the surface ablation. Tell me, how do you discuss the, the genetic test with the, the patient and why you're electing to do that? Yeah, so I think there's two primary patient types that are electing that we feel it's appropriate to do the test for. One is somebody with a family history of keratoconus. So that, that's kind of the low-hanging fruit, and the parents always want to know what level of risk that child, or even at this point, young adult, may have. The second one is those individuals that have those suspicious findings where we're not putting them in a clear, yes, you have a normal cornea, or no, you, you have a something different with your cornea, i.e. keratoconus. So we offer that and we let them know that the genetic risk actually gives us one additional piece of information to help us categorize your cornea and help us understand how we should or shouldn't be managing you moving forward from here. And then we actually talk about those management options. So much has changed in the detection of corneal ectasias, uh, such as keratoconus. In refractive surgery, honestly, when we were talking about in 1999, 2000, uh, it was wide open, and we'd take people with this pellucid pattern, we'd take people with inferior steepness, we'd take that, and that's where we really learned that, you know, and started to learn that, you know, we need to do a better job. And I'll tell you, what you're doing in your practice is exemplary. Yeah. in terms of looking for and helping that patient because it really guides that treatment. Yeah. And it's better care for patients too, oh, Doug. At the end absolutely. of the day, we're protecting those corneas and we're giving them the best options possible. Yeah. So let's change gears a little bit and uh, talk about blepharitosis. Yeah. I think that that's actually a word that needs to be defined because yeah. I think a lot of colleagues get a little confused on blepharitosis yeah. versus browtosis versus... Yeah. 
you know, there's, there's a lot of nuances that exist here. And our understanding through the introductory of innovative treatments has changed the way that we look at these patients. Because what it was as recently as three years ago is, well, if you have ptosis or a low-lying lid, there's one of two options. We either do nothing and monitor it, assuming that it's not secondary to any type of other more serious etiology and just age or acquired blepharotosis, or two, you can visit an oculoplastics physician where they can potentially take care of that for you. And again, with the introduction of pharmaceuticals to help with that, we've actually changed the way that we even screen for these individuals or even understand it. Like when I was in school, um, we had very little taught about assessing the lids. And again, we've seen now that we have pharmaceutical treatments for this, we've seen and become more cognizant of patients who maybe have these compensatory mechanisms, brow aches because they're attempting to hold those tonics. Yeah. 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 So yeah. it's, it's, it's an interesting science. Yeah. And I think where part of the confusion comes in at times also is dermatocolasis versus oh. a blepharotosis. Oh yeah. So that's from a, from a patient's perspective, certainly, but even clinically, clinically, we've actually seen this as well too, where prominent dermatocolasis can actually be perceived as ptosis when in actuality that lid margin is at the appropriate position but that excessive skin is making it seem like it's low-lying. Exactly. Well, let's look at some of the risk factors of blepharotosis. Yeah, so there's the acute ones that I think we need to be concerned about and are more Severe concerns are things that can happen very quickly. Strokes, um, tumors, anything that can actually interrupt the nerve innovation that occurs there. But those will oftentimes present as these acute presentations. And then there's this larger subsection, which is really age-related or aponeurosis, which is a loosening of a lot of the uh, ligaments and the, 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 the muscular structure that are holding these lids up. And, and because of that, you just start to get these, these lid margins that are now starting to, in fact, sit lower over time. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, we know that age is certainly a factor, yeah. that we're going to see a gradual lowering of that lid mm-hmm. as that muscle uh, perhaps loses some of its, uh, its tensile strength. Uh, anything on the, in terms of, then <clears throat> you covered a little bit and that's the assessment yeah. of that patient yeah. you, and you did cover that. Uh, but why don't we review that again on how you really assess the difference in looking at that actual lid margin height yeah. relative to the pupil. Yep. So there's various strategies and ways to look at this. There's what I would consider um, research-based ways, and that's something referred to as the marginal reflex distance, where you're measuring the actual distance from the light reflex within the pupil to the lower margin of the upper lid margin. That's way one. That's that's not how I practically perform it. And what I do is I look at the lid and I assess it relatively speaking where it is on the vertical visible iris diameter in the region of it above the pupil and below the top portion of the vertical visible iris diameter and there's really kind of three categories there is moderate or excuse me low which is again somewhere located in between the pupil and that upper portion of the iris there's moderate levels of blepharotosis, which is somewhere in, or excuse me, lying along the top margin of the pupil. And then there's the more severe where it's actually encroaching within the pupil margin. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the initial acute presentation of atosis causes a lot of concern. I mean, yep. everybody's should be going neurological at that point. Yes, and, yes, say, and, yes. and that's where asking patients for pictures 
<laughs> you know, to find out has mm -hmm. this been something that's been gradual, has been coming mm -hmm. on, was it there before? Mm -hmm. And I think those are real important aspects. And of course, we know some of those patients, I mean, they could be uh, post-stroke patients. I mean, we could have acoustic neuromas, we could have different things mm -hmm. like that also that could cause We can that. have congenital ptosis, yeah. Doug. Yeah. Yeah, and wouldn't it be nice to have that in terms of the genetic test for that as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it would really answer a lot of questions. Uh, so, how do you incorpor incorporate medical uh, blood fortosis treatment into your into your practice? Well, I think it's it's two steps because we're we're in a new era of pharmaceuticals for managing ptosis, and I think it's important to understand really first how it works, and then to kind of what the options are for patients. So. When we look at the upper lid, I mean, there's really two muscles that control its elevation. There's the levator, and then there's the Mueller's muscle, which is the smaller muscle that actually holds the tone of the lid. Now, what's interesting with the Mueller's muscle is that it actually is rich in alpha receptors. So stimulating those alpha receptors will actually elevate that lid. Oxymetazoline at 0.1% when dosed on the ocular surface will actually encroach in through the tarsal plate to that Mueller's muscle. And it'll actually provide activation enough to lift that upper eyelid on individuals that again, have this inherent or age-related blepharotosis. And in doing so, it will lift those lids. So the conversation with patients is, it's kind of a unique one to have because it always requires a second description because I find that when we first say it, they, they almost do a wait, wait, what? Um, but it's really, you have three options with the lids at the position where they are right now. Option one is we don't do anything. We just watch it and monitor it. Option two is now there's a medical way to treat this and it's a drop that you literally place on your eye just like any other drop and within 10 to 15 minutes it starts elevating the lid and then there's a third option which is surgical and we talk about all of those very briefly and then I ask the patient which one they would be interested in pursuing based on kind of what their interests are and we've been surprised at how many people prefer the pharmaceutical agent. One, either as a bridge to surgery to determine, hey, do I really want to get surgery for this? And am I going to recognize the benefit? Am I going to recognize <clears throat> the benefit? And two, just as a benefit as needed. Sometimes people will just want to essentially, from their perspective, look their best. And when, yeah. when we offer that and, option. And, and I've been really amazed by those choices because there's a real reluctance to have a blood fructosis surgery, mm -hmm. you know, where dermatoclasis patients don't hesitate to have mm -hmm. blefts, but actually have that surgery there is. And I think it's a really nice non-surgical option that we can offer our patients. And like you, I found just amazing response. And, and I think the difficulty comes in is the unilateral patient is easy yep. because they walk through the door and you see that it's the bilateral patient. And I think that discussion with the patient to find out, does that affect them? Have they noticed that their lips yep. are because it'll actually have a functional vision effect too. Yep. And I think the bilateral patients are the ones that can be into, I, I found a, uh, a real good tool has been a self-assessment tool where yep. people describe how they see their lids. Because I'll tell you, if they see their lids as just fine, regardless if they're dropping down, well, yep. they're not a candidate. Yep. Well, I'll tell you, too, to add on to that, Doug, we actually take fundus photos in our pretest room. And um, the way that the optical system's designed, if anything's blocking light from getting in through the top, 
through the upper eyelid, we'll actually see a shadow in the bottom of the picture. Oh, okay. yeah. So what we do is when we see that, it's almost a pre-screening tool for us. We communicate about it in the exam room if they are interested in proceeding. We actually dose them in the chair, and then we take pictures after the drop. And the responses from these patients, not only from a functional perspective, but just seeing the fundus photo before and after the lid uh, or the ptosis response has been unbelievable. We actually hear them in the special test room saying, the, wow, I can't believe this. So you know, it's, and it's I, I think you mentioned the, the wow factor to the patients. Yeah. And, you know, I, people are always asking uh, the question, well, what's in it for me? And really, it's a value added because you're their eye doctor. Yeah, and agreed. you're going to take care of their eyes, including if they have something that they perhaps either need a referral or you can medically manage with pharmacological agents. Yeah, so, I agree, Doug. Well, we've covered a lot of territory. We have, we have. Anything additionally you'd like to add about uh, either of these subjects? You know, I just think from a keratoconus perspective, we are in such a different place today where oh. we were 10 years ago. I think embracing the technologies we have are the most important thing we can do for our patients. And from a blepharotosis perspective, we're in a different place than we were three years three ago. Three years ago. Yeah, so we have options. And I think staying on top of these options and just thinking about how to incorporate them in the practice is probably one of the most important things as not only these technological advancements, but further ones in, in all of the spaces that we're providing care for patients continue to come to us within the eye care space. And you mentioned something really early on and that it's better care. Yeah. It's great. a higher level of care, and it always works out for the practice if you're pr providing optimal care to your patients. Okay. I couldn't agree with you more on that statement. My philosophy is very simple. Provide what's in the best interest of the patient, and then create systems that support that within the practice. And every single time we've done that, it's been beneficial to not only the patient, but also the practice. Well, thank you. Thank you, Doug.